what we do here is go back, 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 back. And welcome in to episode 102 of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. My name is David Stabman. As always, I'm joined by the good friend Angela Lisa as we rewatch Live Remember Different Wrestling Pay Per View every single week. And this week, we have a special treat. Last time on the podcast, we had the debut of a huge WWF star in WCW facing Ric Flair. And this time, we have the debut of a huge former WWF star in WCW facing Ric Flair. Last week, it was Hulk Hogan at Bash at the Beach 94. This week, it is the Hitman Bret Hart at WCW Sold Out 1998, a pay-per-view that is loaded up with NWO bullshit, a couple good matches, and again, the, the, the debut of Bret Hart, which was... Like, the only really notable match on the card, more or less, and then, like, was barely talked about on commentary at all, and then didn't even go on last. Main eventing, or or being, it was the co-main event behind the most fucking mid-ass Lex Luger match. So dumb. Like, just what the fuck is this card order here? I, I genuinely, like, I couldn't get it when we were just, like watching, like when 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 we got WCW sold out, and then we fucking like, and I was looking at the card. I was like, why didn't this main event? Hey, w, do you make a fucking foul shot? By the way, this I is- know I was I was waiting for your reaction on that because I'm it's this remarkable. This is terrible. Cannot make a foul shot. It is like it's it's it is like a biblical level problem right now for this team. They're not called pay throws. They're called free throws. Anyway. Yeah, when I was looking at the card for WCW Sold Out, I was like, why is this not going on last, considering there's no world title match? In fact, at the time, the world title was uh, was vacated because they fucked up the ending of Starcade 97 so badly that they had to vacate the title. Um, and yeah, we get this just absolutely mid-Savage Luger match. It's your typical WCW pay-per-view, right? Where it's like the first half is good and the last half sucks. Yeah. Makes sense. But it's still it's still a fun one at times. There's some interesting stuff going on. Been looking forward to talking about this one. What's going on, Ange? Time is a flat circle, David. The Jets will never have a quarterback. We will have old WWF stars debut against Ric Flair, and West Virginia will never make free throws while Huggins yelling at the ref. Just time is a flat circle. Nothing will ever change. We are doomed to repeat these steps till the inevitable heat death of the universe. That being said, yes, I add this to the list of things that never change. A WCW card where the undercard absolutely slaps. It was fantastic. It was great. I was having a really good time for the first half. And then you just get confused by the ending because you're like, oh, yeah, NWO is running the show. And that explains why WCW uh, is kind of a mess. It's weird. The NWO storyline, much like how uh, Kevin Sullivan booked his own divorce, it feels like WCW booked their own bankruptcy by saying, yeah, the NWO runs this thing because we're so disorganized. Well, it's it. the thing is, like, it, we'll go into this. Um, the NWO got so insanely bloated and aimless and just like just weird and sad by about like, I mean, it, it almost started happening immediately. Um, but like by this time, it just really like, it's almost impossible to tell what the hell is even going on anymore. Um, 
And we're coming off of Starcade 1997, which was supposed to be the payoff to the entire angle. They set up this just incredibly memorable feud between the NWO and Sting. And logically, by all storytelling, this should lead to finally Sting getting the win and defeating and vanquishing the NWO. And they didn't do that. And they completely fucked it up. And now we're kind of left drifting in this aimless direct like this there's kind of a no specific direction bunch of weird shit going on if everybody is joining the nwo left and right which um like what's the point of having like a cool outsider stable when literally anybody can join it <laughs> um we get uh somebody who had no business being in the nwo joining the nwo in this show and like one of the big like emotional beats of the show so it just it was a it's a classic inmates running the asylum type of deal and they just let them like they just got so wildly out of control and had no idea how to handle it and had no idea how to steer the thing back on track and most people i think recognize starcade 97 as the beginning of the end for WCW, which is insane because they would do great business throughout all of 1998. They still had the the rise of Goldberg hadn't even happened yet. But this is like like you're starting to see the first real big steps down the road of WCW's demise. Yeah. Uh, uh, right here at this time. I'm never going to say that this group is bigger than NWO, more important than NWO, or better than NWO. Because NWO, I mean – such a huge influence through the history of wrestling, even to modern times. Uh, you know, Bullet Club's kind of like a spin-off deviation of the NWO, and the kind of whole thing with that is like, oh, it's the same kind of stable, yeah. except they they like, played it out because now everyone's in the Bullet Club. However, they, yeah. it's just that's yeah. the gimmick. Like, more like a shameless copy of the NWO in like every way. But like <laughs> the jerk with it because they were in Japan, you know. And the other group that comes to mind besides Bullet Club is the Jericho Appreciation Society because there's a moment where it looked like they were having members after members. Like there's a weird moment where Minoru Suzuki and Lance Archer were brief- briefly running with them for like two weeks. And you're like, oh man, is this going to be – is this just going to get bloated to the point of nonsense? But Jericho kind of falling down the card is what makes it make the most sense because now it's like just a mid-card stable of a bunch of guys that are getting the rub from Jericho. Uh, that's not what this NWO was. This was a very established group, and now you have like the tag match, the six man tag that is just cited NWO: Buff Bagwell, Conan, and Scott Norton. Like, what a random assortment of dudes in a tag team. We're gonna talk about this a lot more. Like that—that that is the specific match where I I wanted to talk about it. Um, like, but yeah, I there like it just ends up in this like it's like why is Scott Norton there like if you're making a if you're making a badass like invader stable why is Virgil in the stable like, <laughs> I don't know I don't get it I just don't get it I don't get any of it I don't get by that point what the hell they were Eric Stevenson you absolute dumb shit what the fuck did he do you're streaming what that's a terrible shot that's a terrible shot I'm never going to forgive Bob Huggins for stealing his swag. He stole Eric Stevenson's swag completely. To go back two weeks, that dude's swag was insane. And now it's all gone. It's all gone. The swag's gone, folks. He's broken. It's, it's broken. We're fucked. We're fucked. This shit sucks. I hate my life. Uh, but yeah. 
Um, that's what I was saying at the end of the Savage Luger match. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I guess we might as well remember some guys because, yeah, there, there is some shit to talk about here. I mean, um, this, this first match has a ton of guys. Oh, my God. This first match is banger. Uh, but yeah, are you ready to just remember some guys? Let's remember the guys, David, yeah, as guys. I forget WU. It is January 24th. 1998 we are at the Hera Arena in Dayton Ohio only 5,486 people in the building for WCW sold out 1998 but that is a sellout in a smaller building um a legit sellout by all counts um for the first WCW pay-per-view of 1998 and the first WCW pay-per-view after the infamous intergalactic disaster that was Starcade 1997 and what was supposed to be the payoff at the NWO versus Sting angle. We have in the main event Lex Luger versus Randy Savage in a high-stakes matchup between one of the stars of the WCW side, Lex Luger, and one of the main NWO guys at the time, Macho Man Randy Savage. But the real attraction is the in-ring debut, as mentioned before, of Brett the Hitman Hart, who had made his way over to WCW after the Montreal Screwjob, which, of course, we talked about on this podcast a couple of weeks before. He is uh, making his WCW debut against the nature boy, Ric Flair, who once, once again finds himself in the position of welcoming a big star to WCW. Because if there's anybody you can rely on, even at the age of 49, to go out there and like, hey, we're going to welcome this guy in. We're going to bring this guy into the fold. Let's have a let's start him off with a good match and make him look good. You put him in there with the fucking nature boy because you know that he is going to be down. Um, it's, it, it, interesting historical footnote. Meanwhile, while this is going on, this is going at the same time as WWF is catching mainstream fire with the Stone Cold Steve Austin, Mike Tyson angle that mm. got them hot as fuck in the beginning of 1998. Hard to underestimate how big that angle was mainstream. Um, so on the other side, what is WCW doing? What, what is WCW doing to counter Tyson and Austin? We're about to find out. We have Classic Booth, Tony Schiavone, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and Dusty Rhodes on the call. And let's lead it off with, how about just a pure Lucha spot fest? That sounds fucking great to me. Sounds good to me, too. Eight-man tag, we have Juventud Guerrera, Super Kahlo, Lismark Jr., and Chavo Guerrero Jr. taking on the team of the chairman of WCW, La Parca, Silver King, who is probably best known to American fans by playing the evil luchador Ramses in the movie Nacho Libre. Um, that was Silver King, who was in this match. We have Psychosis and El Dandy, who would be immortalized, of course, in the famous Bret Hart, Who Are You to Doubt El Dandy promo. <laughs> which calls El Dandy a jam-up guy, one of my favorite promos of all time. Um, and, of course, because it's a, it's a lucha match, we got to get the Professor Mike today in there because he's the guy who can you know tell everyone who the fuck everyone is. Love seeing Tanae on here, one of my all-time favorite announcers. Uh, he put in a shift on this card. He did a really bang-up job. Yes, he does. He does an absolute jam-up job on this card. 
Um, Dusty Rhodes gets me laughing immediately when he says, and I quote, because there's no single human being on earth who has ever spoken the way that Dusty Rhodes. Love me some Dustyisms. We got a tremendous matchup ready to transpire. <laughs> I just fucking love it. So this match is a complete fucking like just spot fest. Here is a list of the cool spots that I liked from this match. There's a lot of them. Uh, there's a lot. Um, we get at the beginning Super Kahlo doing like a run up backflip off of Psychosis's chest in the corner, and then hitting him with a power slam, and then hitting him with a tilt a whirl side slam. They look great. Um, Fucking Lismark Jr. and Silver King hitting each other with some of the biggest fucking chops that you will ever find. Oh my find gosh. Out. I mean, this was like Minoru Suzuki ass chops coming from Silver King in this match and Lismark Jr. Um, they do some cool backflip shit. Um, Laparka gets in there and Laparka is cool as fuck. Laparka just does his. There's no one in the history of mankind who just moves the way that Laparka does. Like, I actually have one name. Uh, because it, he he feels like such it feels like this guy was so inspired by Laparka and it's you'll you'll know it as soon as I say it Penta yeah. Penta just yeah, seems like Penta he was is, so inspired yeah. by Laparka so much has got some Laparka type movements going I mean, it's just it's hard to describe unless you see him but he is so like unmistakable that <laughs> Laparka moves around he's got a little strut it's like you can it's it's like it's it's like what I talked about last week. We were talking about Anoki, where it's like you can just look at his profile and just have it be like like the black outline of his profile, and you can tell who it is because mm-hmm. of his line. You can just like like completely like just show me the silhouette of Laparka moving around and ask me, hey, who is this silhouette? And I could tell you it's Laparka because no one else moves around like Laparka. He moves like Jack Skellington. I know. He's got very much and you know, he's got the skeleton gear going on. But he's so fucking cool. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he gets in there and is really awesome. They do a bunch of shit. There's a bunch of dives in this match. Um, Lizmark does a middle rope moonsault where he lands on his feet. That was awesome. Super Kylo does a springboard head scissors off the top rope. Um, Hoovy hits a 450 on L Dandy. Then Laparka breaks it up, grabs him, hits him with a Liger bomb for a big two count. Um, we get Super Kahlo breaking that one up. Um, El Dandy tries to do a springboard plancha. The outside misses and eats shit on the floor. And then we get like six dives in a row, like immediately after this. So uh, so El Dandy misses his spot to the outside. He eats shit. Super Kahlo hits a diving swanton off the top rope. El Dandy hits a suicide dive. Hoovy hits his air Hoovy dive off of Lizmark's back. Then Lizmark bounces Laparka up to the apron. Laparka hits a moonsault to the floor. Then Lizmark hits an acai moonsault to the floor. That leaves two guys in the ring. There's six guys who had just gotten caught up in all these dives on the outside. Um, there's two guys left in the ring. It is Chavo and Psychosis. Psychosis tries to do a flying drop kick in the corner, misses, eats the buckle, and then Chavo hits a tornado DDT. And gets the pin and wins the match. Chavo's team. So that was Chavo, Lizmark, Supercalo, and Hoovy win the match. Nine minutes and 30 seconds. Pure fucking action all the way through. And then afterwards, the chairman, Laparka, he gets <laughs> the chair. And he hits everyone with the chair. Because he's Laparka. He makes the fucking rules. No one's going to tell him not to hit everyone with a chair. He's the coolest guy here. Fuck you. Laparka does what he wants. 
uh, and Chavo's team wins the match. Really fucking fun start. There was a great. This was a great point you made in the group chat that I am going to steal here. Uh, is that while we agree that D'Lo Brown has the highest per of any wrestler in in all of history, Laparca is a very close second, La Parca if not right is, up there with him. Laparca is the only competition to to, to D'Lo. He is just so fucking cool all the time. I think we could might be able to look back at, at Penta the same way because I think every time Penta's on TV, he just steals the crowd every time. Like it's very few guys get pops like Penta. But Penta gets so much more screen time than Lapar. True, 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 true. Because true. you know it's you know things have changed, right? Somebody like Penta, who is a, a masked luchador, can get more you know screen time on a promotion like AEW. Then, like, you know, LaParca was ever going to get in WCW, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like, you're like, on any given WCW show, like, on any given AEW show, you might see a 20 minute Penta match, right? He just had seven fucking, you in know, a row. best of seven fucking series with the Elite, right? Where he was all over that. Um, but, like, on any given WCW show, you might only get like five minutes or less of LaParca. In those five minutes, you're going to get so much LaParca being fucked. <laughs> this you is know? true. Um, yeah, this, this was a very fun start. I love when they start with these like exhibition matches of uh, foreign superstars, foreign wrestlers that, you know, it's kind of it's just kind of, hey, it might not matter long term booking. There might not be a story going here, but here are a bunch of dudes that are incredible wrestlers that you should probably be watching or learning about. Um, I was really like blown away by Lizmark and Silver King. It feels like both those guys really did carry this match for most of it. Yeah. Silver King and Dandy looked like right out of Nacho Libre, which is fitting. Um, just thick yeah. squat luchadors. Um, whatever it is in this match, Silver King just was oozing charisma the entire time. I was just locked into Silver King. Um, yeah. the Liz Lizmark had a moment. He le- leapt to the top rope into a moonsault, just the like Ray Phoenix type shit of just walking the ropes. It's these guys are incredible. The suicide dive dive spot in leading into the finish was just you know that that moment of like holy shit, this is funny but also awesome. Uh, one of those best, the one of the best things about wrestling is that like you can hit all those notes at the same time. And then Chavo, that young, that young guy, that rookie, uh, pulling out the win for his team, you know, kind of builds him up. I know WCW likes incorporating him later on. He was in the Misfits uh, and had a more prominent role as a you know, kind of a goofy guy with a gimmick. But you know, this was fun. This was a very good, fun way to start the show. La Parca forever. Also, can we talk about the spray can cutaway spots every time after every match? Yes. yes. Yeah. They have like their, like when they're, for, for this WCW sold out pay-per-view, um, they have like their, like their, their transitions, I guess, when they're going to a replay, like the, instead of doing like a, like a fucking like fade or like a star wipe or any of that shit, it's like a fucking guy doing a, like shaking up a like spraying a spray can like a like a spray paint feel you know which goes along with the nwo spray paint gimmick they used to spray paint the nwo initials on you know the belts on people's backs all of that shit um i kind of liked it i thought it was kind of cool uh it was goofy but i thought kind of cool it was a good idea that came off as tacky i think in execution a little but i i i kind of liked you know because again this was Supposed to be a, it was like a co-branded WCW NWO pay-per-view, as many of the WCW pay-per-views were at this time. Um, 
and it very much fits that NWO motif. So, you know, the, the graphics aren't going to look that great, man. It's 1998. You know, people don't have, you know, the, the, the fuck cool ass production values that they have now. But I, I appreciated what they were going for there. I appreciated what they were going for. Um, yeah, super fucking fun match. Again, there, there, no story, but there doesn't need to be a story. There's not supposed to be a story. Get eight luchadors in there. Do a bunch of shit. This is a lucha spot fest, and it's fun as hell. Everybody looks good. Everything is everything is like executed very well, very crisply. It, the match is hot. You know, the crowd's into it. They're enjoying it. This shit rocks, dude. Yeah, also, uh, another one. Chavo's uh, Tornado DDT. Just picture perfect. Excellent. Excellent. Best Tornado DDT this side of Fuego del Sol, baby. Really good. Um, and yeah, love the, love the finish. It's like, how do we set up the finish? We need to have, you know, because it's like, that, that's one of the things you run into, right, when you're putting together a, a, a tag match with this many people. It's like, how do we get to the point where there's only two people left? That we can actually get to the finish and not have someone break it up or whatever. Like, how about we just do six dives in a row and then all those guys are out of the out of the ring? Great idea, dude. Keep it simple. I mean, awesome. that, that's how a about pro- we just all do dives at the all in a row. You and, know, and the worst multi-man tag matches involve just like constant run-in breakups for like pinfalls or submissions it's the it drags everything down but this one didn't have a lot of it and they were able to make sure hey we got these six guys out of the way now we can have a nice clean finish here very very fun shit so next up we have a raven's rules match raven's rules means there's no rules it is raven and his flock come down to the ring they're taking on chris benoit in this anything goes match uh Raven comes out, and uh, the ring announcer, David Penzer, announces that the flock is banned from ringside, so all of his goons have to leave. Um, Raven, eventually, all of his buddies walk out. He's sitting alone in the ring, and he cuts, you know, classic kind of Raven emo promo, grunge guy promo, where he says, you know, he talks about how he refuses to conform to society's rules, and he's not afraid of being alone. He's been alone his whole life. And he tells Chris Benoit, I don't fear your pain. I will feast on you. God damn it, middle school Angela would have marked out so hard for Raven. Ray, yeah, Raven invented being a middle school edgelord. And <laughs> by doing so, he was the only guy who was able to do it and also be cool at the same time. Um, so Raven jumps Benoit as Benoit tries to get into the ring, whips him into the barricade, whips him into the steps. He really gets heat on Benoit to start this out. Hits him with a chair get plenty of chair spots in this match it's an anything goes match but really the one weapon that's involved is this lone uh steel chair that is used pretty much throughout the match um he snapmares him onto the chair benoit is taking these snapmares like just doing the flip bump and landing on his back which is interesting um he uh snapmares him onto the chair he hits him with a bulldog onto the chair benoit then eventually reverses him he drops toe holds him face first into the chair Fights back with a bunch of chops, uh, rips Raven's shirt off at one point and continues to chop him in the chest. Hits him with a suplex on the chair. Uh, we get some uh, outside stuff. He baseball slides him into the barricade, throws him into the steps, hits a suplex on the entrance ramp. Another suplex on the chair back into the ring. He hits a diving headbutt onto the chair. Hits Raven, but hits the chair as well. They 
uh, he sells like he, you know, goes out for a little bit, eventually uh, gets up first, tries to hit Raven with a Northern Lights suplex, but Raven reverses it into a DDT. Both guys are down, crowd chanting Benoit's name, but eventually Benoit is able to, to get back up first, and he locks in the Crippler crossface, and Raven doesn't tap out. He actually goes to sleep in the hold. Chris Benoit wins this match, 10 minutes and 36 seconds. I enjoyed this one. I really like this one. I thought this was probably the best story that got told. Maybe the next match was up there as well. But, I mean, Benoit and Raven really do have a sneaky great match here. Um, first off, another Dustyism here. Quote this, Raven, get the flock out of here. Just ah, classic, beautiful. Love Dusty. I love the fact like the only weapon really used was the chair. They didn't get too crazy, but they were really creative with the spots with it. Yeah. Like the bolt. They, they got so much mileage just out of that chair. I mean, that chair was in every fucking spot. Like once Raven brings in the chair, that chair is in every single spot for the rest of the match. And it's great. Like the bulldog on the chair looked brutal. The toehold into the chair looked really good too. The way Raven sold it. Like both these guys compliment each other because they just both have a violent way of selling moves like the way they sell makes it look like the move hurt 10 times more than it did um uh this version of benoit too just the way he was moving around the ring gave me a lot of brian danielson flashes just like the way he was in utter control the way he was kind of like had this controlled frenzy um which i know that you we can't always comp danielson going back to benoit for obvious reasons but like, it really is kind of, like, staggeringly scary to see the similarities. Even the diving headbutt. The diving headbutt spot, though, onto the steel chair will never not make me cringe. It's just yeah. – it is a spot that I do not need to see. I understand that it's part of uh, what Benoit did. But it's, like, moving forward with that, how his – the rest of his life went. Yeah. It, it's, it's like, ugh. Like, yeah, in retrospect, maybe you uh, should have done a few less of those, buddy. Yeah, so always hard to always a hard thing to watch. Um, but the crossface out of nowhere, just like the sudden the suddenness they snaps it in, and then obviously whenever a guy passes out in a submission, it's you, you you always talk about how 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 do both guys really get over here? It's it, it's one of the easiest ways to get both guys over. Just passing out in a submission in a match like this where they beat the hell out of each other uh, makes a lot of sense. It, it was a worthy finish to a match that made it feel like it was a blood feud between two guys who just really want to beat the hell out of each other. Also, we get a little bit of Dean Malenko at the end here, and Dean looks already he's like to, looks ready to put a whack on somebody. Just uh, yes. take take care of someone for the boss man. Yes, I, I did. I I did forget to mention that after this match, we get. Uh, Billy Kidman and the rest of the flock run in. Um, Dean Malenko comes to the save. Dean Malenko uh, shows up. He puts Kidman in the cloverleaf. Uh, the rest of the flock runs in. They attack Benoit and Malenko. But Benoit and Malenko fights, uh, fights them off. Uh, one of the coons carries Raven to the back in his arms like a baby. <laughs> uh, Raven is selling that he is out cold from the crippler crossface. Yeah, uh, the, the Benoit Danielson comp is obviously, it, it's an obvious one um, in really everything that they do, but just like kind of the mixture of them being so good technically, but also like very violent at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, very good match. Very good match. Uh, again, loved how they, they kept it kind of simple. You know, they could have done a lot more with the anything goes stipulation could have done a lot more different shit, but 
they kept it simple. The only weapon that they used was a chair, but they got everything out of using the chair, and they used it very effectively. And just a little thing that I like, uh, fucking, like, Raven smiling as he passes yes. out of the pool. Little like look at this look at this freaking sicko over here. <laughs> Just uh yeah. Look at this freak Raven. I, I will say nice little story beat there for me that I enjoyed. It didn't hit my two and a half marks, but I will say this. Uh losing a match that is named after you, maybe not the best way to get completely over. <laughs> yeah, that's that I mean that's gotta be rough, man. You lose your own match. Dude, it's a fucking it's it, that'd be like Kane losing an Inferno match, man. Like, what are you doing? Taker man? losing a buried alive or a casket match. Yeah, that, that's your match. What are you doing, bro? Come on. Next up, cruiserweight title is on the line. First of a couple of uh, title matches on the show. It is the champion Rey Mysterio Jr. defending against Chris Jericho. Uh, really great looking match on paper. The issue here is Rey Mysterio had suffered a pretty serious knee injury about three weeks before at a house show in Georgia. He had, according to Dave Meltzer, torn his ACL and his meniscus in his knee. Wait. That was three weeks before he had continued to wrestle on the injury and actually had won the Cruiserweight title in a great match with Juventud Guerrera about a week after suffering the knee injury. But he is now, you know, it, it's it's got to happen. He's got to have surgery. This is scheduled to be his last match before he goes off and has knee surgery. So, yeah, Ray's totally dropping the title tonight. But he – and they turned the knee injury into the major part of the story of this match. Ray still moving around pretty well. Way better than can be expected. I was going to say, you, I mean, I, I figured he was hurt by, like, torn ACL and MCL – yeah, Get the hell out of here, Ray. How do you do this? Around, with the way he moved around in this match, like, you could have told me it was a worked injury and I would have believed it. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, he's got a torn ACL in this match. He comes out um, wearing a big knee brace um, and that the knee obviously becomes a big part of the story. He starts selling it pretty early on. He, he goes for like a fake dive. Like, looks like he's going for a dive and then swings through the ropes to fake it. And then he comes up with and he continues to sell the knee through the rest of the match. Doesn't do a lot of his normal high-flying spots. And makes sense because he's injured. I uh, he can't really wrestle the way he normally does. A lot more striking from Ray than what we, what we really expect, especially at this point in his career. Um, we have a spot where he does a head scissor. He, or he tries to go for a head scissors to the floor, but Jericho catches him, hot shots him to the top rope. And he gets some heat going after the knee. Ray hits one big flying move, which was a, a spring for like a springboard somersault sent on to the floor. Um, and then he flat Jackson into the steps, goes for another springboard, but Jericho pushes him off the top rope and he goes down. Um, finish of the match was great though. I thought it looked awesome. Ray, uh, Jericho is, uh, on the sitting on the top rope. Ray tries to go for a springboard Hurricane Rana, but Jericho catches him and then drops him straight down. They go down to the mat and drops him straight down directly into the walls of Jericho. Great transition. They did it excellently. Um, Ray submits, 
And Chris Jericho is the new champion, 8 minutes and 22 seconds. Afterward, Chris Jericho gets on the mic. He says, this is the greatest moment of my life. He says to the crowd, you guys, you know what? You want to boo me? Let me give you a reason to boo me. And then he starts stomping on Ray's injured leg. He rips the brace off, hits him with the brace, uh, throws him out of the ring, and then he hits him in the leg with one of those like rolling like TV crate things. Um, yeah, the equipment case. Yeah, the equipment case. And uh, Ray is out. And then, you know, that's the way that they write Ray off of TV. And we'll see him again in July. He would be out for about six months. It's weird growing up with Ray Mysterio and then going back to watch this because, like, he's a small dude, obviously, but he looks really small back th- back here. Like, he just lo- it's, he's so lean, um, just like very much. He seems so much smaller than what he is, like in the mid two thousands and even today. He didn't uh, really. St- I mean, he started basic. He he really started juicing when he was in WWE. Yeah. Uh, when we when we saw him when we started watching him yeah you know he's obviously a short guy but when you when he you go back biggest. He, he was like he got pretty thick and pretty muscular he packed a, a decent bit of muscle on that on that small frame uh, and I don't think it was good for him because he started getting injured a lot yeah um, and now he's slimmed down and he looks as good as ever. I'm I'm actually really excited to see what he does with Cross because I think like having a guy that's a good base against Ray is always going to be. A fun match because you can have Ray do a bunch of insane shit like he did here, even with that bum knee. Um, Jericho, obviously, he's so great playing with the crowd uh, and reacting to them and having those facial expressions. Like the way he expressed himself in the match, Jericho really is one of the best with that regard. Um, so fun. So fun to watch him. Just so fun to watch him operate. So fun to just watch him interact with the crowd. So fun to just watch him react to everything going on around him. He's so, he's so good. So good at that stuff. The reactions, uh, the commentary, his his quips, all great. The springboard flipping sent on to the outside on that bum knee. I that's just silly. That's just nuts. Yeah. Um, and then the super hurricane rana immediately into the lion tamer for the finish. Just utterly fantastic stuff going on Wait, here. The finish was so good. The finish was so good, and they like they executed it perfectly. I I loved that reversal. There's another one too, and uh, that he flips up into uh, Jericho on the apron, and then gets hit kind of with like a stun gun on the top rope. Just yeah, that was that was like the, that was like the cutoff. He uh, yeah, he, what, what was it? He had he was going for a head scissors, and then Jericho catched him and just whipped him into the rope. He hot shot him into the top rope. Yeah, that was insane athleticism from both those guys because you know you're operating on the apron, not a lot of space there, and uh, you know Mysterio having that bum knee really like kind of ups the difficulty on that one too. Um, Ray in this match too does a great job of like you selling that knee and using his limited size to kind of like for all the leverage. There's a spot where he has like a Jericho in like a rear naked choke, and he's just putting all of his weight into that choke to try and like you know he's not a big guy. It's easy to pick him up, so you use all the weight that you can. Uh, but this match really solidified two things for me. One is Ray the greatest just pure baby face of all time, like. I, Dusty, who's commentary on the card, all-time babyface, but, you know, this is the last end of, like, his, I guess, in-ring in career, quote-unquote, uh, and turns heel. Ray has never had a moment where you're not really rooting for him. I'm not even sure if Filthy Annals would be considered heels. No. I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, he was technically a heel for that time when he was with Conan and Filthy Animals. Um can't remember was was he an LWO were they heels I can't even remember none of that shit really mattered uh, but yeah like Ray has basically been a babyface his whole career and 
he's basically always been over the whole time. And I think that's a point where his size works for him. You know, being a small guy, it's so much easier to get sympathy mm-hmm. when you're from, the, from the crowd when you're a baby face and have them, you know, cheering for you when, when you know, they're, you know, like the heel is getting heat on you and you know, the crowd is like wants you to, you know, get back into the match, right? And Ray is such an incredible athlete that he could, he could combine that with that, that natural, like, you know, that, that natural ability to get sympathy from the crowd and get the crowd behind you. With also being just a jaw-dropping fucking, you know, physical performer who could do things that nobody else could. Who was, like, so far on the cutting edge, you know, of what people were doing in pro wrestling at the time. I mean, Rey Mysterio shows up as, like, a 17-year-old kid in the 90s, like, like an alien from another planet. I mean, the, like, you go back and watch what he was doing in Mexico and go back and doing what he was watching, what he was doing in ECW and then later in WCW, like he's doing shit. Like he single-handedly moved the fucking like, like high flying style forward, like 10 years all on his own, Mm -hmm. like on his own, he was doing shit that was years ahead of its time. So true. Um, again, just our problem going back to this young Ray. Um, I know he's been in a match with them before, but just, Imagine seeing this version, like this young Ray, in a trios match with the Young Bucks. Oh my God! Like I know well, we there there the trios match with the Young Bucks. Of course, it all in. Yes, all in. That so. was that was incredible. But like having Prime Ray with the Bucks is it would just be wondrous content. God, imagine all Young Ray versus Ray Phoenix. Oh my gosh! I mean, Ray Phoenix. I don't know what he doesn't have like the pure baby face in him like Ray does, but the stuff he does in the ring, man, is just—it's up there. I'm I'm glad that uh, Vikingo is finally able to get booked in the U.S. because that motherfucker is like that. That dude is like I feel like watching Vikingo now is like watching Ray like in like how it felt watching Ray in like 1994, or it's like. This dude is just routinely doing shit that appears completely alien. And you're like, yeah, this is what people like, like, this is what high flyers are going to be doing in 20 years. And he's doing it now. And you're like, it just doesn't make physical sense to your brain at all. Like, that's what the king goes like. How long do you think it'll be until he's on AEW for a little bit? Probably. It's probably going to happen soon. And I it honestly can't happen fucking fast enough. <laughs> um, seriously, I, I have been I have been on the Kingo for like Ooh. years. What if we did a Vikingo uh, Takeshita match? That that shit would rule. I mean, they were both in Bola this year. I mean, I, I I don't know what actually happened in Bola, but all I know is like Speedball won. I don't know what the actual matches were. So I think it was Speedball beat Takeshita in the finals, which I'm sure was fucking fantastic. Uh, but yeah, I don't know anything about like the bracket or anything though. That shit's not going to be like a, you were like because it's PWG. We're not going to be able to see it for like six months. Um, but when we anyway, do, we digress. You know, the Kingo is cool. Yes, we all know this. Uh, mean Gene is in the ring with, I guess he was the president or the commissioner. I don't fucking know. J.J. Dillon, famously the uh, one-time manager of the Four Horsemen. Um, he is some sort of authority figure here in WCW. They are picking through the wreckage of Starcade 1997 with the complete absolute fuck finish. Uh, where there was a, maybe there was a fast count, but actually there wasn't, and, you know, Sting won, but not clean, and it was just a, 
fucking disaster. What are we doing about the WCW world title? The title has been vacated. And we have J.J. Dillon addressing the decision. He says that the person that I went to for advice on figuring out what we're going to do was none other than Rowdy Roddy Piper. And he has Roddy come out to the ring. Big pop for Roddy. Everyone loves Roddy Piper. He cuts this promo where he talks shit about Hulk Hogan, of course, his classic rival from the 80s. Makes a very topical reference to Bill Clinton cheating on his wife. Crowd loved that. He tells uh, Sting and Hogan and Scott Hall to come all come down to the ring. Scott Hall being an interested party uh, to this world title scene because Scott Hall is technically owed a world title shot because he had won the World War III Triple Battle Royal in November. So supposedly he was due the title shot against the winner of Sting and Hogan at Starcade 97. Uh, Roddy Piper tells Scott Hall, hey, fuck you, you're not getting a title shot, piss off, Scott Hall. Um, and they eventually, uh, he, he makes the match Sting and Hogan for Super Brawl in February, another match that would have a stupid fucking finish. Um, Hogan, I wonder why. Hogan is uh, not happy about it. Everyone kind of stands off, but then frustrated Scott Hall walks out on uh, Hogan, leaves Hogan behind, and then Hogan, outnumbered, uh, hightails it out of there. So the match is made. Main event of Super Brawl 98 is Hogan and Sting rematch for the WCW World title. Uh, next up, I believe uh, our second of just two title matches on this pay-per-view. Yeah, this is our last it's title match, and we have five to go. Yeah. Uh, WCW TV title is on the line. Booker T defending against longtime WWF uh, fixture Rick Martel. Uh, part of the very, very brief Rick Martel WCW run that no one remembers at all. <laughs> um, came in, former uh, babyface world champion in AWA, then a longtime fixture in WWF, most notably as uh, the heel uh, the model, Rick Martel, in the late 80s and early to mid-90s, he was he had left WWF in, I think, 94, had been kind of floating around the you know for a little while, came back with WCW in 98. This is uh, his first like big match in WCW, and then he was back at the next pay-per-view at Super Brawl, and suffered what was essentially a career-ending knee injury. So he was basically on w in WCW for about two months. Um, but he is challenging Booker T here. They have a perfectly acceptable match. Um, Booker T hits a spinner Rooney and hits his leg lariat early in this match. Um, Booker hits a uh, Harlem sidekick. They do this weird spot where uh looks like Martel is trying to leapfrog Booker T. But... He kind of ends up colliding with him, and it looks like Booker sort of headbutts him in the dick a little bit. And Martel is selling back to the corner. Booker, you know, this is kind of a, to this point sort of a babyface, babyface dynamic. Booker T doesn't have, it's kind of like, oh shit, did I hit you in the nuts? Kind of goes over to check on Rick Martel in the corner, and Rick Martel pulls him face first into the buckle and then beats him up. Um, gets some heat for a while, some like kind of aggressive heat work from Rick Martel. Uh, hits a spine buster. Eventually locks in his finishing hold, which is a Boston Crab. Booker gets to the rope. The referee breaks up the hold. Rick Martel is celebrating like he thinks he won the match, uh, but then turns around. Booker's still in it. 
Booker comes back with the scissor kick, hits a side slam, and hits the Harlem hangover off the top rope. Booker T gets the pin, retains the match, uh, retains the belt, 10 minutes and 50 seconds. Afterward, Rick Martell kind of angrily grabs the belt away from the referee, then walks over to Booker, hands him the title, raises Booker's hands, respectful handshake in the ring. Afterwards, Perry Saturn makes a run, and he runs into the ring, and for apparently no reason, beats up uh, Rick Martell until Booker runs back in to make the save and chases Perry Saturn off. Uh, yeah, perfectly acceptable match. Work was fine. Uh, no heat from the crowd, unfortunately. Yeah, it was a solid worked match. It's just like, I don't know why I'm supposed to care. Uh, like, Booker's cool. I love Booker. Booker's entering charisma is incredible. But However, Martell's entering charisma just wasn't there. It didn't feel Martell, like there's a lot of it. Martell was good. I mean, I, I, I want to, you know, again, I want to say Martell was good. He was always good. Good worker was pretty entertaining in WWF as, like, the heel model gimmick, you know? Like, he was a very, very solid guy to have on your roster. But... This was like a weird spot to have him in because they brought him in in WCW in 1998, several years after. He basically hadn't really been on TV in like five years and kind of dropped him in. Didn't really have any distinctiveness to his character. He was just kind of Rick Martel. He wore a shiny robe. Wasn't doing the heel gimmick anymore that people recognize. And he was perfectly solid, but there just wasn't, they, they didn't really do any work to get him over. Yeah. Like what, what was I supposed to like latch on to with Martel here? I, I, that, that's the kind of big crux of the issue here. Yeah. WCW didn't really give you anything to latch on to with Martel. And yeah, it's, again, it's a shame because Martel is a little bit older by this point, but is still perfectly good. Like, no, it yeah, it was worked fine it was work in this match, you know, but there just wasn't really like WCW just kind of, throws them into this match and there's, they don't really give the crowd anything to really care about here. Yeah. And like, uh, the finish of the match too, with the Harlem hangover, the Harlem hangover did not look great. Um, that is like the Harlem hangover was always one of those moves where it's like, there's some people who come off the top rope and they don't give a fuck about how they land on you. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? It's like, did I it feel like Booker with the Harlem hangover. It's just like, Hey man, I, I hope I don't, you know, eat shit. Watch, like, I hope I don't kill you with it. I hope I don't break every, every rib that you have. Uh, but I'm coming down. It's like it's like if you watch like Too Cold Scorpio does kind of the same move, the tumbleweed. Mm -hmm. um, and he still does it today, even though he's like 60 years old. And it's like at this point, Scorpio is like, hey, man, I'm 60 years old. I'm just fucking coming off the top rope and I'm going to land on you how I land on you. <laughs> and I feel like Booker is the same way with this. Except like, Booker's like 24. Yeah, yeah. Except Booker is half of two. It's like it's 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 fine when it's too cold Scorpio today because it's like, hey, it's amazing that you're that old and you've been wrestling that long and you can still do shit like that. Like it's like it's cool, you know. But Booker, it's like, dude, you're like 29 years old. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then like right afterwards, Martel gets right up and then takes the title and then gives the title back to Book. Like. I don't know what 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 this is serving, and then the Saturn interference is just like I don't know why I'm supposed to care about Rick Martel, and I'm sorry to Rick Martel. Yeah, I mean, like the ending kind of makes sense where if it's like, you know, they're maybe trying to like like sell like Martel and Booker being friends and maybe teaming up later. It's like okay, like Martel is gonna like go out of his way to like really show Booker some respect, right? And then Booker makes the run in and saves Martel. Maybe you're going to do something where, you know, Booker and Martel are going to be going to be friends and maybe team up together. 
but that doesn't end up happening, right? Because no. his his run gets cut short so quickly. I mean, he basically a few weeks later suffers again what was essentially a career-ending injury, uh, which is a shame because Rick Martel, uh, I think, all told, a pretty underrated guy. Um, so yeah, Booker T still the champ. Next up, we have Scott Hall is back out, but to wrestle this time. Uh, second of three Scott Hall appearances on the show. He is going to be, he comes out with his, uh, his buddy, Louis Spicoli, who was doing kind of like, uh, Scott Hall's like, sort of like buddy lackey slash number one fan type gimmick <laughs> at this time. Um, and he is facing 46 year old Larry Zabisco. Looks good for 46 at the time. Looks very good for 46. Um, a guy that had been wrestling for, uh, I think maybe almost 20 years by that point. Um, at a time where not many guys wrestled into their 40s, people didn't take care of themselves as well back then. There's way more guys wrestling at a high level in their 40s today than there were back then. Um, so Larry Zabisco being able to at least even function in a wrestling ring at that age is much more impressive then than it would be now. Um, Larry Zabisco comes out thought very, very, very notably using the uh, the Living Legend nickname, which he completely shamelessly stole from his uh, mentor and, tra- and, and trainer, Bruno San Martino. Yeah. Um, he was, Larry Z was Bruno's baby boy. Um, Larry comes out and he points to the commentary desk and who comes out to accompany him to ringside? Then the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, wearing a full Canadian tuxedo. He is looking great. I need the baseball cap that he has. That is a sick, I love that yellow and purple combo. It's not Lakers yellow, yeah. go, purple, but I need, I need the hat. I was actually looking up WCW uh, baseball hats yes. after I saw it. Dusty Rhodes is wearing a fantastic, like, yet, like it's a yellow baseball cap with the WCW letters in purple on it. It's such a banger. I, I, I Such would a good also, hat. I would also cop one of those hats if they were like available for purchase anywhere. Um, but yeah, Dusty's Dusty wearing a cool hat. We love him for it. So we get the story of this match early on is the veteran Larry Zabisco out wrestling Hall technically at the beginning of this match, but eventually Hall is able to take control. Um, Louis Spicoli on the outside taking a shot at him and helping Scott Hall get up on Larry Z in this match. We get very large, like loud, dueling Larry sucks and Hall sucks chants from the crowd. Honestly, the crowd was more into this match than they were into a lot of the matches on the show. And I can't tell. Yeah, no idea. They were into this match for some reason. Um, Hall gets heat for a while, hits a fallaway slam. He goes for the, the razor's edge, or I guess it was called the outsider's edge at that point in WCW. But Larry reverses it into a back body drop. Uh, Larry furiously fighting back. Ref kind of keeps getting in the way of Larry Zabisco fighting back against Scott Hall. So Larry ends up kicking the referee in the back with like a spinning back kick. That looked really weird. Scott Hall knocks Larry Z out with a lariat from the corner, but the referee is out and can't count. Um, As the referee gets back in, Larry is able to catch Scott Hall in... Kind of looks like a guillotine choke, but then Louis Spicoli runs in and uh, 
attacks Larry uh, from behind. Um, we get a big brawl after this. Um, the official decision of the match, Larry Zabisco wins the match by disqualification in eight minutes and nine seconds. Dusty gets in and does his dusty shit all over Louis Spicoli. He's, you know, the crowd loves it. It's dusty. It's classic. Um, but then, uh, and, and then Larry Zabisco grabs Scott Hall from behind. So he's holding Scott Hall up and he's like, come on, Dusty, give him the fucking, give him your elbow, knock him out. But then Dusty gets in and he hits Larry Zabisco with the atomic elbow. Gasp. Removes his denim button down shirt to reveal an NWO t-shirt. Dusty Rhodes has joined the New World Order. And they all take turns. Dusty Rhodes, Scott Hall, Larry Zabisco, or Dusty Rhodes, Scott Hall, Louis Spicoli take turns dropping elbows on Larry Zabisco for a long time. They all walk up to the uh, all walk up the ramp together, and Dusty yells into the camera, "WCW, bite this!" Makes no I, sense. Come on, listen. Dusty Rhodes in the New World Order makes no goddamn fucking sense. Never I mean, did. We love Dusty. We love him. This is always and forever going to be a pro-Dusty podcast. He's so fucking cool, so charismatic. We all love Dusty. But, my God, that guy does not belong in the NWO. Does not. Nothing about the Dusty character. I'm a son of a plumber. Uh, he can't be a heel. He's like, you like, can't. Not that Dusty couldn't effectively be a heel if he if he wanted to i'm sure but at that point why why bother he heel, he's dusty he's like literally one of the greatest baby faces who has ever lived who's ever walked the earth there's no need for this there's no need for this the closest comparison i can come up with is like a old veteran like david west joining the golden state warriors that have kd and trying to get a ring. But, like, even then, it's like, oh, he did was a successful you career. Dusty Rhodes to David West. I guess I just did. That's a, te- that's a terrible comp. <laughs> terrible comp. I'm, I'm thinking David, of. David West joining the Warriors. That would be like, I mean, David West was very good for a few years. Excellent role player. Like a, maybe a borderline all-star, really good pick and pop guy. You're talking about maybe a Rick Steiner? Maybe. Guy, not Dusty, but Dusty, like that's like a Kevin Garnett fucking type guy. But besides, like besides the bad comparison notwithstanding, it's different when an old like NBA or an old like sport veteran goes ring chasing. Like Dusty Rhodes, like honestly, it's better for him to keep the whole son of a plumber, uh, just genuine good guy than oh, we're gonna do this for the swerve of the swerve it uh, the, the swerve of it all. Excuse me, hard to get that one out. Yeah, so it just if you're if you're talking about ring chasing, that's that's more like to go back a little bit. That's more like when Gary Payton signed with the Shaq Kobe Lakers for yeah. that last year. That's more like that. You yes, know what I, mean? I guess that's probably the closest thing we could get to, but it doesn't work in wrestling because like Dusty himself cannot win the world yeah. championship in 1998. And it's also like like. You're not like like ring chasing. Like I kind of get what you're saying with it, but it's like also Dusty Rhodes has been the world champion. Exactly. You know. So why are we doing this? He's not like desperately. It's like oh, like T Mac when he signed with the Spurs and sat on the bench because he just wanted to win a ring. 
You know, it's like, no, you already won the rings. You won all of the fucking rings, dude. You've done all everything you can do. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and that's kind of like why it doesn't make sense here. It's just it why? It doesn't matter. Zabisco, I mean, I, I did enjoy him this match, like as a guy who living legend name notwithstanding, he is a guy who is the literal definition of a living legend. Like the guy has been around a long time. He's had a lot of accomplishments. A lot of people know him. Heck, he was getting one of the loudest pops of the night. So like having him against Scott Hall and kind of feeding him to Scott Hall makes some sense to kind of make Scott Hall look better. But the dusty of it all just doesn't make sense. It's never a good sign when your manager gets a bigger pop than you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know what Larry's doing here. Uh, match is okay. I mean, yeah, Larry Larry looks reasonably good in the ring for a guy who at 46 hadn't really been a regular wrestler for several years. Like, he looks reasonably fine, you know, and, and I, I guess the, the match itself is probably about as good as you can expect, but it's just kind of, you know, it, it's, just, it's just there to set up the dusty turn, which, again... I don't understand it. It's not necessary. No one's asking for it. Not a single person is saying like, oh, you know who I want to see join the NWO? Dusty. Nope. So. Cursed. Man, I don't know. Pretty cursed. Pretty cursed. Don't really get it. Don't really get it. Don't really understand the point. Don't understand the point. Probably never will understand the point. But here we are. Here we are again. Talking about people. Like uh, people in the NWO, where you're just kind of like, man, there's way too many people in the fucking NWO. We got a six man tag. It's an NWO versus WCW match. Quick question, David. Who the hell is Ray Trailer? Ray Trailer. <laughs> well, okay. So here is the t- here here are the teams, Angelo. Uh, we have so Dusty is gone from commentary. Tony Schiavone is depressed. Horribly, he sells us great. Like, it's like, man, I don't even want to talk about this shit anymore. I can't believe that Dusty would do like really, really sad Tony for a little while. Very sad Tony, like and clinically now, depressed Tony. And now he's got to call this dog shit six man tag match. Uh, it's the NWO team of Scott Norton, Buff Bagwell, and Conan, accompanied by Vincent, aka Virgil, uh, Buff screaming into the camera like a maniac during their entrance. Against the WCW team of the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, and Ray Trailer, uh, using his real name, better known, of course, as the Big Boss Man, and we had him last week as the Guardian Angel. Uh, but Ray Trailer, aka the Big Boss Man, he is uh, using his shoot name now. In 1998, they are accompanied by uh, Ted DiBiase. So we have Ted DiBiase and Virgil on ringside. No, uh, no nods to their significant history together uh, in this match. But uh, we have – so the story of this match is some growing discord between Scott Steiner and his brother and Ray Trailer. Scott is starting to kind of begin the process of fully big bad booty daddying himself. <laughs> he walks down to the ring. He's starting to show that attitude a little bit more. He hasn't bleached the hair yet. He doesn't have the chainmail or anything, but he does very notably, you know, flex those peaks right into the camera. It's like, look at these peaks. Very soon, he will acquire some freaks to go with those peaks. Um, he and, and so part of the, the the discord 
um, idea is in previous matches that Scott had been in, he had basically been hogging the whole the whole match and not tagging anybody in and like wrestling the whole match on his own. So he tries to start the match. His brother Rick goes up to him and says, hey, take a fucking hike, buddy. I'm starting the match. And Rick Steiner and Ray Trailer continually tag each other in and don't tag Scott in. They are freezing him out like Isaiah Thomas did to Michael Jordan at the All-Star game. Um, so we get very early on in this match, uh, Mike Tenay gets back on the desk to uh, take Dusty's spot on commentary. Um, again, Rick and Ray, trailer, try, keep tagging each other in, not tagging Scott in. Eventually, the NWO guys get uh, some heat on Ray Trailer. He gets the tag to Rick, but Vincent trips him on the outside and Conan DDTs him. We see Scott gradually getting more and more frustrated and pissed off on the outside. Um, match overall, though, is pretty boring. Conan has Rick Steiner in a leg lock for a long time. Um, Scott gets frustrated to the point where he just runs into the ring and breaks it up. We, we get this really weird spot where, when we get to the hot tag, where uh, Rick finally gets, like, you know, dives over to the babyface corner to get the tag, and he ends up slapping both the hands of Ray Trailer and Scott Steiner at the same time. So they both get into the ring and both do, like, parallel hot tags at the same time while the ref stands around looking like an idiot all confused. Um, eventually, the referee decides, I gotta get one of these guys out there. Hey, Scott, take a hike. Scott gets pissed off, shoves the ref, then, for good measure, walks over to Conan, hits Conan with a massive dragon suplex. Gets onto the apron. Finally, Ray Trailer dutifully walks over, tags Scott Steiner in for real, and then Scott gets Conan, hits the, Sky the Steiner screwdriver, and he gets the pin. Babyfaces win the match in 12 minutes, 20 seconds. Afterwards, Scott flexes everywhere and then just walks out on his team and leaves on his own. A really weird match here. Yeah. Oh, man. Scott, being the Scott was by far the most interesting guy here. And didn't really do anything outside of the finish. Like he's doing his roid rage kind of gimmick to everyone. And he's yelling at the ref and he's kind of like interacting uh, on outside the ring. But like there's nothing that, that he's not the focus of the match for most of it. Even though he's like he's the focus of the match, but not the focus of the camera work. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's it's weird because I very much there's very much an interesting story here that you can tell. Right. Like, you know, if, if especially if you're trying to set up eventually uh, the Steiners split up and they feud against each other, right? Yeah. You don't have Scott getting a bigger and bigger head and not wanting to tag his partner in. And then, you know, Rick and Ray Trailer trying to give him a taste of his own medicine and not tag Scott in. And then Scott getting more frustrated and then something happens. Like that in and of itself is a perfectly interesting and valid story to tell, right? And, but it just gets cut off at the knees with this weird-ass double hot tag thing. Like, because... And placing a very weird NWO team that doesn't make a lot of sense on paper. What would make sense is if, like, you could do the double hot tag, but then the referee keeps Scott from getting in the ring. Yeah. While the trailer's getting the hot tag and running around the ring. And then that just makes Scott more pissed off and more frustrated. And then, you know... So and then and then you go from there, right? And then you, and then you like lean into that frustration, and then 
you know, there's a couple different directions you can go with it. Either he turns on them or maybe he like forces Ray to tag him in and then it like they, they start arguing and all this shit. But like the fact that like it ends with them doing parallel hot tags at the same time while ev- like the referee stands around all confused. It's like, I don't know what I'm fucking watching here either. You know, what mm-hmm. are they doing right now? Like, where are we going from here? I I was confused. Sometimes it's worth just going ahead with what you think is right and then figuring out why you're wrong later. Ref, you could have done that there. It didn't make any goddamn sense at all. Also, it was undercut, too, by Tony kind of being very depressed for the first half of the match. Yeah. Tony, who is supposed to be the play-by-play announcer, just, like, he doesn't say anything. Because he's just selling that he's depressed over Dusty, which I get. But you're also the play-by-play guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to buckle down and and just do the job, my man. Um, And he doesn't do it. Hey, you got to put over Dusty whenever you can. Yeah, I guess. But I was just like, come on. Like, you got to do something, dude. You got to, like, you got to do something. You got to at least talk. It's your job. (laughs) So... Um, next up, Battle of the Giants. It is Kevin Nash walks out to the ring with Hogan and Bischoff, taking on the Giants, Paul Whites. Um, and when they get in the ring, largely, you know that these guys probably aren't going to move faster than a brisk walk. But there are a couple neat spots in this match, uh, where the Giant was pretty impressive, interspersed with, you know, them standing around for several minutes at a time. Uh, uh, Giant catches uh, him with a big back suplex. It's a jumping elbow. The one cool spot in this match, Yep. Kevin Nash tries to do a pescado over the top rope to the floor, which is something that Kevin Nash has, like, never tried to do in his life. He does it, and he clears the, he clears the top rope, and he clears the apron, and the Giant catches him out of midair. Uh, you know, very cool spot. 300 pounds coming down at you and the giant catches him. Number one, the Kevin Nash doing a Pescado. That was cool. Cause he's so huge. It's a, it's a cool, uh, uh, fucking like visual. And then the giant catching him. Very impressive. Giant drives him into the post. That's absolutely the standout spot of this match that otherwise was relatively boring. Um, with the, uh, referee, uh, turned around. We have, uh, Hogan hitting him with the back, uh, giant in the back with a chair. Giants barely able to roll into the ring at the count of nine. Um, Giant eventually, you know, Nash gets some heat for a little while. They do a very shitty looking double big boot spot where they both go down. Um, and then Giant comes back, bumps him like five times in a row, hits a big boot, body slams him, calls for the choke slam. Bischoff gets on the apron, so the Giant choke slams Bischoff into the floor. Or, or onto the, the mat, excuse me. Would have been cooler and, if it was onto the floor. Yeah, and then uh, while the referee is turned around, Hogan gives Kevin Nash what appears to be a pot mm. of coffee that they're selling is like, like oh, boy, like hot coffee. Um, and he throws the coffee into the Giants' eyes. Coffee goes everywhere. And uh, low blow from Kevin Nash. And then the scariest looking jackknife powerbomb of all time couldn't get the giant up all the way onto his shoulders so you could then flatten him out or you could he can take the bump on his back. 
He gets him up, kind of, and then just drops him directly on the top of his fucking head. Very, very scary-looking powerbomb. Uh, and Nash gets the pin 10 minutes, 47 seconds. Yeah, no, that was not a fun spot to end the match if for a match that wasn't very fun. I was kind of hoping, like, two big guys this size, just let big meaty men slap some meat here, and it wasn't that. It was just plotting, and that's upsetting. Um, Nash leaping over the top rope. Again, that was a spot, maybe the spot of the night, because that was just downright brain-breaking. On so many levels. And then we had some literal brain breaking on the jackknife powerbomb, which just, I could have told you before it happened, that was a bad idea. And fortunately, Big uh, big Show, the giant, uh, was able to get up and walk. Yeah. I mean, uh, Meltzer reports that he was diagnosed with a concussion afterwards. Um, but yeah, fucking scary as hell. Hell, dude. I mean, really scary shit. Um, like, again, there's a couple interesting spots in this match. Again, the the giant catching him on the piscata was really cool. But whatever, like, a number one, hot coffee, really? Hey, hot coffee. You you've burned your tongue on hot coffee. That that shit don't screw around. I mean, how hot is it? Like how. Like, they don't have a coffee maker at ringside, so someone had to bring that from backstage, uh, most likely. I guarantee you that shit's probably not that hot by the time, ten minutes into this match, that Hogan is actually taking it and physically throwing it into the Giants' face. I'm not buying that it's that hot. In a pop, I have a Yeti uh, coffee cup, and I'll pour my coffee in there when it's I make it in the morning. It's not a coffee cup! That's it, not what they did but- it out of! It's a coffee maker. I'm just I'm just putting the argument that in a properly insulated uh, device, coffee can stay relatively scalding hot. I've had scalding coffee hot for maybe an hour. Saying it's possible doesn't mean it was. I'm I'm not buying it, man. I'm not buying that shit. Like obviously, like they're working it, so it's it's not actually hot. May or may not have actually been coffee. But, uh, you know, like, just in a kayfabe sense, there's no way I'm buying it. That shit's that hot, dude. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. No way. No, sir. Uh, it's also, like, the only time, like, it's basically like, the same spot as, like, the classic, like, powder in the eyes spot. Right? Black mist. Or the, you know, yeah, the mist, you know, because everyone likes to copy Muda. But... It's the classic fucking powder in the eyes, but most 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 common is powder in the eyes. Pocket sand. Why not just do powder in the eyes? Why does that have to be coffee? Why <laughs> why are we why are we workshopping coffee? <laughs> like, what is that? It is I, beca- I it is this weird. it is this moment in history why coffee has become a na- nas- uh, nationwide phenomenon that most of Americans will now drink and are obsessed with. Start right here. That was weird. Like, I don't know why we, why we decided to use coffee for this spot. It just didn't really click for me. Next up, we have, it's not the official main event, but it is the real Should main have event. been the main event. It is Bret Hart making his WCW in-ring debut against Ric Flair, a match that on paper looks really good. Even though Ric Flair, 49 years old, hadn't wrestled a whole lot over the previous couple of years. He and Bishop had a very poor relationship. But he, you know, Flair turns in a very good performance in this match. And we have a very good technical wrestling match. 
Uh, Bret Hart locks in the figure four on Flair early on, but he's able to get to the rope. Um, Flair is bumping him all over. Or, uh, Bret, rather, is bumping Flair everywhere to start the match. Flair is, again, if you are bringing in somebody from outside that you want to make look good uh, to start off, have a good match, have that guy look strong, you call in Rick fucking Flair because he understands he is a, a classic premium assignment understander. He knows that his job is to make Brett look good, and he bumps all over the fucking place for Bret Hart, especially at the beginning of this match. Eventually, Flair pokes him in the eye, dirtiest player in the game, and he starts working him over. Uh, Brett catches him as in a sleeper hold that uh, Flair reverses him into a back suplex. Flair is doing the, you know, working a chin lock, getting his foot on the ropes for extra leverage. Hart comes back. Hits a neck breaker. Hits a bulldog out of the corner for a near fall. He starts working over the leg. Looks like he's going to go for when he, you know, he would do the figure four around the ring post, but Flair boots him into the barricade. He starts going after Brett's leg. Um, they do a spot where he goes for the figure four, gets reversed into a cradle. Brett then goes for a backslide. Flair kicks out a two. He goes to argue with the ref, but Flair chop blocks him and locks on the figure four leg lock. But Brett is able to escape. Uh, Hart, Brett Cart comes back, hits him with the uh, side rush and leg sweep, hits the backbreaker, his diving kind of elbow drop, fist drop thing that he did for a two count, hits a superplex, and then locks in the sharpshooter. Ric Flair submits very quickly to the sharpshooter. Gotta, gotta make the sharpshooter look strong. Brett Hart wins the match. 18 minutes and six seconds. Solid match. Solid match. Makes Brett look good. It doesn't ever hit that, like, very much feels like, you know, they're kind of knocking out the stuff that they do, and it doesn't really ever reach that next level. But it's a good introduction to Bret Hart. If you're someone who just watched WCW, didn't really watch much WWF, good introduction to who Bret Hart is, what he does, what he's good at. And Ric Flair makes him look, look makes him look real strong at this point. Yeah, great. Uh, good intro. Great story throughout the match, even if the move selection is kind of We'll say average because they don't really do a lot of crazy things. It's just like uh, they tell a good story, but they don't do a lot of moves, which is kind of like the whole basis of wrestling. Um, so it's just a really cool matchup here because like both these guys are like well-renowned technicians, but in very different ways. Uh, Bret Hart being a very serious perfectionist, whereas like Flair is just comes off as like naturally good. So it's very interesting to kind of see those two styles styles make fights because they're well they're the same type of wrestler they're two different variants of that type of wrestler it, it kind of like lends itself to the story that they tell um, I love seeing an early figure four out of Bret Hart just early mind games you can't you can't mess around with but this is just a classic flare match the guy is so entertaining when he sells and he doesn't try and beat you with one moves he try he always tries to beat you with a thousand paper cuts and that's like the theme of every flare match and like being able to withstand that is a testament to any wrestler um i love the spot where brett pulled down his straps and was no selling the chops just really sells brett as a badass and the crowd really uh, crowd popped the end here for brett and that's all that's what you want to ask for 18 minutes i couldn't ask for a better 18 minute match given the rest of the matches on this card um but yeah this was cool this was a very nice little again another match that you could classify as a dream match or flair um that ends up being you know worth your time to watch very good match. I mean, again, it's it's a great introduction to Brett. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it, like like we talked about last week. 
this is a tremendous spot for Ric Flair, who, as we said, is a all-time assignment understander. He has Ric Flair is in the ring one of the most unselfish top stars of all time. Spent his whole career making guys look like a million bucks. Even mm-hmm. when he was winning all the time, even when he was champion for months and months on end, 16-time world champion, that whole time he was making everybody look good. And he makes Brett look really good here. Just it's- as he made Hogan look really good at Bash at the Beach 94. He understands a really fundamental truth about wrestling is that when you're in the ring, your biggest job is to make the other guy look really good. And the other guy's job is to make you look really good. That's one of the fundamental deep, deep truths of wrestling. And Ric Flair understood that at a very, very, very intrinsic level. And he spent his whole career doing that. There's almost like a prisoner dilemma with it. Like your job is to make the other guy look good and his job is to make you look good. But if he makes you look good and you don't make him look good, then you look that much better. It's a real kind of prisoner's dilemma thing. And if you want to get caught up in that. Um, But yeah, Flair is always great doing that stuff. It's why I always find it funny when people are in like Meltzer or Sean Ross Sapp's mention saying, I can't believe that Moxley's selling his ass off for, uh, I'll say Takeshita for right now because I can't come up with another name. But like he's your champ, he's supposed to be look indomitable. It's like no, that's not the goal. Uh, I know that was a popular thing with like when Kenny Omega was uh, a champ and like he had a match with Al Angels and they always cite that one as like why the hell is he selling his ass off for Al Angels? That's the whole thing. That's how you make guys. It's how you kind of build up yeah. and replace them and tell stories. Yeah, the 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 Kenny Omega Alan Angels match ended up becoming like a real flashpoint in this. Um, like I, I remember it so well because Alan Angels was a completely unknown guy and Kenny goes out there and has a 10 minute match with him where he makes Angels look great and it was a terrific match um, and then all these people were like well that makes Kenny look bad because he didn't fucking beat Alan Angels in 5 seconds and it's like that is literally what Ric Flair spent his entire career doing having 10 minute matches with guys who were in the same position as Alan Angels and making them look really good. So, like, eat shit. Fuck you. That's what wrestling is supposed to be. Squash matches should be reserved for giants because they are an effective fool to get over a monster. They're not as effective if you have a guy... Like, you could have a Roman squash match, but, like, Omega was never a guy that you could see squashing anyone that wasn't a jabron. Omega should be putting in a solid effort and, like, he makes the other guys look better that way. And that's how it kind of makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, that's how you have good matches, which your goal or one of your primary goals when you're in a wrestling ring is to try and have your match be good. It's like one of the things that you should be trying to do. Um, not everyone can do it all the time. I Lord knows I know that for a fact. But you should be always be trying to best your best to have the best match that you can. Uh, but fuck, man. Yeah, I mean, like, Flair is one of the best at making guys look good, and he spent his whole career doing that, including when he was on top for years and years. He was always making guys who were, you know, supposed to be below him in the pecking order, always making those guys look good. Because guess what? If you make a guy look good and then you beat him, that makes you look better for having beaten somebody who looked so good in that match. So... Ric Flair, 
again, one of the most unselfish top stars of all time, and does a great job making Brett look good in his debut, again, in, 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 a, in a position where I'm sure there were some people watching this match who you know, didn't really get into WWF, maybe had heard of Brett because he was the top guy over there, but hadn't seen him that much. You know, this is a very good introduction to who Brett is and what he does and, and what makes him good. Uh, and Flair, at 49 years old, a guy that hadn't worked with all that much frequency the previous few years, he goes out there with something to prove and he does a really good job. Um, that should have been the main event, but it isn't. This is the main event. Uh, I don't know why it is the main event, but it is. Um, it is NWO member, Macho Man, Randy Savage, along with Elizabeth, Miss Elizabeth, taking on one of the kind of linchpins of the WCW side of the WCW-NWO war for many years, Lex Luger. Uh, the bell rings and nothing happens. Yeah. Uh, the Macho Man starts slowly walking back up the ramp. Uh, Luger follows him. Elizabeth hits him in the back. And then Savage jumps him. Uh, there's like three of these fucking spots where like Elizabeth distracts Luger and then Savage comes up from behind. And at a certain point, you're just like, man, Lex, you look fucking dumb, buddy. <laughs> like, <laughs> you should stop letting this Jezebel distract you, man. Like, come on. Um, but yeah, Elizabeth keeps distracting him over and over in this match. Um, we get... Uh, Savage does his diving axe handle from the top rope to the floor. Uh, yeah, again, we get these distraction spots over and over again. Uh, they fight into the crowd. Eventually, Luger's able to get the better of him when they fight into the crowd. Um, he takes control. He drops him throat first on the barricade. Get back into the ring. Luger gets his comeback, hits a few clotheslines in a row. He hits his big forearm with the metal plate in his forearm, which I know he had had a motorcycle accident for real. I don't know if, like, the whole metal plate gimmick that was actually like, did he really have a metal plate in his arm? I don't know. Uh, Who could say? Boy, I guess. Um, but he does the, you know, the forearm gimmick. Um, Luger hits a power slam right as he hits his power slam and he starts calling for the rack. Uh, Hall and Hogan come out from backstage. Hall walks out with a chair. Hogan is following him a pretty good distance from behind. Looks like Hall is about to use the chair to help Macho Man uh, come back and win the match, but Hogan stops him from using it. And then while Hall is up on the apron, him and Macho Man bump into each other. Hall gets knocked off the apron, and Savage stumbles right into the torture rack. And Lex Luger racks him, and Savage submits, and Lex wins the match for WCW. Seven minutes and seven seconds afterwards, the NWO guys... Oh, collectively beat down Lex Luger in the ring. But Sting runs down, and he kicks everybody's ass. And as we go off air, we get Luger racking Kevin Nash, Sting putting Hulk Hogan in the Scorpion Deathlock, and the, the combo of Luger and Sting stand tall as we go off air at WCW Sold Out 1998. And that post-match beatdown is why this was the main event, which is never a good reason. Um... But I will say this though for that post match like shot, I appreciate the law like the recognizing that hey Luger and Sting were part of the team with Hogan that were supposed to fight off the uh, NWO the Outsiders uh, all the year back when 
Um, so I will give them points for that. The visual of seeing Luger rack Kevin Nash and then uh, Sting put Hogan in the Scorpion Deathlock. That's something that you throw in a video clip. Uh, and that's what they really probably wanted from this. But yeah, the match itself was really just kind of it, it was boring. I mean, like so bad. Again, like one of my pet peeves in pro wrestling is making the baby face look stupid, and Lex looks so fucking stupid. Like, yeah, he keeps fucking like all all Elizabeth needs to do is like wave at him, and he starts like fucking following after her. Oh, he's like a golden retriever. Yeah, he's got like big puppy dog eyes, which makes sense because him and him and Elizabeth actually did get married like a couple <laughs> years later. So maybe he was maybe he just wanted to like you know. He just wanted to talk to her, you know. Maybe he was like, maybe he was feeling Elizabeth, you know, feeling the vibes, you know. I mean, like that. Maybe it's kind of like the beginning of their romance a little bit. I don't know, uh, but Lex is yeah. a good. Lex has a great theme, though. I will say that it's one of the best themes of the '90s. Yeah, I always, I I liked Lex a lot more than I think a lot of people like Lex. I feel like there are some people who like to talk shit about Lex like he was just a, you know, a body guy, you know, uh, which kind of was, but he was over for, he was like a lot more over for a longer period of time than I think people remember. He's, um, he's high variance. Like the moments where Lex is good, he's very good. And there's a lot he, of things to like about Lex, but Lex the bad was, Lex is bad. Lex was good enough that a good wrestler could have a good match with him. And that's fine. Like, he wasn't good enough that, like, if you weren't really good, like, he was going to have a really good match with you. But you put him in there with, like, he had some awesome matches with Flair where he looked great and, like, played his role really well. Um, But, yeah, he he was – but he was – he was, especially in in WCW, like, always over – like more over than you remember for a longer period of time. And I, I always like to bring up when he beat Hogan for the title, uh, a, a just insane reaction from the crowd. They went ape shit for Luger beating Hogan. And maybe it was just because, you know, the, the shock of Hogan losing, but no, I mean, Lex was over at one point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I've always been a guy that was like, you very much you like have to recognize his shortcomings, right? He, he did have some some shortcomings, but I've always been higher on Lex than some other people. I thought that he was a guy that could play a role well. I I mean I agree. I mean my dad was a huge Lex guy back in the day, and like I could see all the reasons why. But you're very much right. Like he's a guy that if you put him in a great with a great worker, you're going to get something good. But you put him against a washed Randy Savage. Yeah, mileage is not going to go far. Macho Man in '98, he had retired like five years before when he was in the WWF. So yep. this is post his first retirement, and of course, Savage in the '80s was one of the 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 great workers of his time. But by this point, you know, he was not really trying anymore in the ring very much. New, no. really not trying anymore. Not that I, I don't know what him really trying and working hard to have a good match would have looked like at this point anyway. But, you know, when when you see Savage come on in the ring at this point, you tune out. It's just, you know, you're not going to get that much. And yeah, not great. Not great. A dud of a main event. I mean, we do have a a bit of a hot finish with uh, the the run-ins with Sting and Luger. Does get a good reaction from the crowd. 
those guys beating up NWO guys, people love to see it. People love seeing Sting beat up NWO guys. They always did. They always will. Um, so you get the, you know, send the crowd home a little bit excited type of thing. But this this match just so does not feel like a main event at all. It's just so boring and nothing. And so short, too. It's a seven-minute main event. Yeah. Really, it's just like, why the fuck wasn't the Brett match the main event? Why? There's no reason for it. Yep. So, that'll send us four two and a half marks. Angelo, starts off. Sure thing. Uh, negative half mark is going to your manager getting a bigger pop than you. Uh, honestly, definitely happened with uh, Dusty and Zabisco. You could also probably say that Miss Elizabeth was more over than Savage at this point. It's just not a good side when your manager is over. Like, I think, like, uh, I love me some Stokely Hathaway, but I do think that's kind of, like, the half the problem with the firm right now is, like, Stokely is kind of, like, the main attraction there, and everyone else kind of, like, you compare them to Stokely, and they're just, like, a little bit less entertaining than Stokely is, even though Stokely doesn't work any matches. It's a very hard ask, and it's usually not a great sign for the people that you're working with. Not saying that's impossible, but... It's not always good. Uh, so negative half mark there. My one mark is going to using the equipment case as a weapon, even the ones with wheels. I think I always love it because those things look positively brutal. You know they don't have a lot of give to them because likely they are being used to carry things from place to place. So it's not a gimmicked weapon. I always will mark out for spots like that. I think there is a match. Uh, I'm trying to remember the NXT UK match. I think it was what was it? Mark Coffey versus Joe Mastiff. The last man standing match, Dave, Dave, Dave Mastiff. Okay. I'm glad I got the last name right, at least. But I enjoyed that match so much. And one, they were very much using the equipment cases in that match as well. It's just a brutal looking weapon. I love when they use it for spots. One mark to that. By two mark. Dave Mastiff, the size of that lad. That lad is the huge. size of this man. Get him in NXT, man. I'm sure that you could do some things with him. What a big man. He's a big boy. B-O-I, boy. Uh, and then my two marks is going to WCW undercards, just laying the foundation for the future. I mean, I think the first half of this card really does look a lot more like modern wrestling than anything in the last half. You have like high paced multi man matches, and you have guys like Benoit, like Jericho, Rey Mysterio, and even Booker T. I think Booker T, uh, obviously in that era, he wasn't the biggest guy. But he was like a bigger athletic dude who could do some moves and then function in either the I'm working against a bigger guy, uh, even though I'm like, you know, a large guy myself, or he could be a monster versus smaller dudes. Today, I think he kind of would fit in that Randy Orton role where Randy is probably the biggest guy on the roster, despite the fact that he was like kind of small when he started off. But I think that those are the kind of molds that really helped shape modern wrestling more so than anything else in the last half of this match. Uh, this card. All right. I'm going to give my half mark to going big and then going home. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I'm referring to the finish of the Lucha Spot Fest match where it's like, hey, uh, what do you want to do? How, how do we want to get to the finish here? How about let's do six fucking dives in a row? Awesome. Uh, you never see you never see people do that. Six dives in a row? Why the fuck not? I mean, you're going to do it. You might as well go as big as possible on that on that whole concept and then go straight to the finish. Absolutely adored that because, it's again, it's, it's just like 
they hit once they hit the third dive, like three dives in a row, you're not expecting the fourth dive. <laughs> and when, when they hit four dives in a row, you're like, my God, surely that has to be the last dive. It's the and horseshoe like, rule. It's the parka. Fuck you. And I loved it. The I horseshoe that, rule coming back to effect. I loved that shit. I thought that was so fucking cool. Um, I'm going to give uh, my one mark to Dusty's look on this show. Again, Canadian tuxedo slash uh, that WCW hat. The immense power that Dusty was wielding on this night in Dayton, Ohio, could just not be overstated. Um, really incredible, incredible stuff. He had, he had a buzzed mullet, too, because he had like the buzzed head, and then he had a little bit at the very back that was still poking out. So cool. So cool. I mean, like, listen, we always, we always have to give something to Dusty every time he's on. Um, and this is it. He was, he was just he was serving looks, as the kids say in Dayton, Ohio that night. And I'm going to give my negative two marks to uh, how fucking bored Michael Buffer was like 95% of the time when he was doing the fucking intros. Like, I understand um, like the attraction of using Michael Buffer. He was a big time, uh, really, probably the most famous ring announcer in the world. Let's get ready to rumble. That's, you know, a big trademark. He's still doing uh, it today. Yeah, we'll do it today. Uh, people, people still today. No, let's get ready to rumble. Um, he had his thing, and he got famous doing it. Made a lot of money, and he made his brother famous too. Uh, who's screaming, still screaming his head off at the UFC. Uh, but like, so I understand why WCW liked bringing him in. And at his best, when he would come in for these big main events, he lended a sort of additional gravitas to it. An additional like sense of like it's the big moment. Michael Buffer's here, and he's introducing Goldberg and doing this big long intro for Goldberg. But like a lot of the times when you're flying Michael Buffer in to you know intro Lex Luger versus Randy Savage in Dayton, Ohio, it's like <laughs> there's diminishing returns here. At this point, just let David Penzer do it, you know, because then when you actually bring him out. For Sting versus Hogan or Goldberg versus Kevin Nash or whatever big fucking match, then it feels fucking big that you got Kevin or you got you got Michael Buffer out here. But like here, he's just going through the motions. And guess what? I understand it. Everyone else is going through the motions of that match too. So why wouldn't Michael Buffer be going through the motions? It's just it it lessens the impact of having a bored Michael Buffer intro a meaningless Luger Savage match. In front of five thousand people in Dayton, yeah, now, lessens the impact of having Michael Buffer. That's probably one of my favorite negative marks that we've ever given on the show. Why? Thank you, Angela. So, uh, let's head to our last order of business. So, we are doing. You're going to be out of town or something going on next week or something. Two I, weeks from now, I'm going to be out of town two weeks from now. So, we're going to be doing some market downs. We're going to be able to put two out. Over the next two weeks, uh, as I will be out of town and be unable to do the full episodes. So we're going to have some prepped episodes for y'all. The market down matches. We have some ideas right now. I don't think we finalized anything yet, though. We have not. Uh, but I am going to spin the randomizer for now and see what we're going to be watching in a couple weeks when we next do our, our next uh, thing, our next fucking full gimmick. 
Uh, as I pull this up, what do you want to see, Angelo? I'm going to still harp on NXT. I think it's been a minute since we've been there, and I really kind of want something that's different, something fresh, something that's going to be very unique compared to everything else that's on the randomizer. Huh. Well, that's not what we're getting. But I, I do agree. It has been a long time since we've gotten NXT. Um, and... Yeah, that's a little. That's that's that's. You know, I, I would like to get some too. We got something horrible, did we? We got something fascinating. There was a lot of talk on this show about the fallout from Starcade nineteen ninety seven and some of the worst booking decisions of oh all boy. time. Well, guess what? We just got Starcade ninety seven. I do not kayfabe the randomizer. We just got WCW Starcade nineteen ninety seven on the randomizer. Yeah, no, what are the fucking odds, right? But that's what we have. Starcade 97 from my hometown of Washington, D.C., in the home of the Wizards, the MCI Center. Um, Sting and Hogan in the big payoff to the NWO Sting feud, this huge storyline. This was the match of 97. They had built this up for 18 months. What is the payoff going to look like? Here it is, Starcade 1997, next time on the Two and a Half Marks podcast. So, for my good friend, Angelo Gleason, my name is David Statman. Thanks, everybody, for listening.